0: Hello,
1: and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the Spotlight is on Danny Schur. In nineteen sixty eight a time whose social unrest parallels our own, the 16-year-old Danny Schur booked the innovative jazz pianist Thelonious Monk to play at his high school in Palo Alto, California. If that doesn't sound amazing enough to you, how about this? The recording of that show, made by the high school janitor and called one of the best live recordings I've ever heard by Thelonius, by none other than the jazz great's son T.S., is due to be released on Impulse Records on July 31st. Danny shares the story of how that show came together. But there's more. Danny went on to work with the pioneering concert promoter Bill Graham, and he was generous sharing tales of working for and with Graham while passing on some of the philosophies and practices that made Bill a legend in his own time and for the ages. Enjoy our talk. So, if you will, can you set the scene for me? What was happening in Palo Alto in 1968?
0: Well, in Palo Alto, at at that time, you know, a few months before uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated and Robert Kennedy was assassinated, there there was uh, a a lot of tension in the community, Palo Alto being a predominantly white community, uh, across the highway from East Palo Alto, which is a predominantly black community, there was just a, a lot of tension. And people, very similar to what's going on right now, in a way, were saying, you know, saying things that would make them feel you know as one with with both communities now it's you know black Lives. i'm not putting it down i'm saying it's black lives matter but but even in our high school yearbook there was um you know it was dedicated to martin luther king and robert kennedy and and you know how many blacks and, and people of color were admitted to colleges and and this is before, you know, a, a way. This is before the women's movement, in a way, which is how many women are were admitted to colleges and graduate schools. So there was a a lot of tension and angst. I, I was born in Palo Alto, so I lived there my whole life, and I went to public school there, and then I went to, you know, I went across the street to Stanford for my undergraduate and graduate. So I I I really spent the first, you know, twenty four years of my life there and seeing this, you know, seeing this change very slowly. And, and as a resident of Palo Alto, really, you didn't think of it. I wasn't aware. I mean, I was a kid and you're in elementary school and, and uh, you know, you you would just hear things like, well, just stay out of East Palo Alto. It's tough. You know, it's dangerous. Uh, That's where you go to buy. That's where the liquor stores were. There was a, a neighborhood in East Palo Alto there's a, a sliver of East Palo Alto that was on the west side of the highway that separates the two communities. And that sliver, which had really good, um, a couple of really good hamburger places and a ribs place, which is very used to ride our bicycles to get hamburgers, but there were liquor stores there. And that sliver was called Whiskey Gulch. And now I believe it's where the Four Seasons is. Yeah. And when the Four Seasons went in there, you know, maybe in the 20 years ago, I don't know how long it's been there. Uh, they wanted, because it was technically in East Palo Alto, the Four Seasons wanted it to change its, uh, the address, I, I believe, to Mendel Park or Palo Alto, anything, anything except East Palo Alto. And East Palo Alto, you know, turned them down on it. But at the time, you know, after Martin Luther King and, and, the, and the riots, Uh, There was a movement to change the name of East Palo Alto to Nairobi. Mm -hmm. So at the time I I did this concert, there was a a lot of press and and an election coming up. The the concert was uh, October 27th and the election was the following Tuesday, the first Tuesday in November, like it is now. You know, the election is always the first Tuesday in November. And it just happened to be, you know, a few days before the uh, election. And I remember there was a lot of, you know, there there were some people, you know, who were smirking at, oh, Palo Alto, East Palo Alto wants to change your name to, you know, Nairobi. You know, some people were smirking, and some people were, you know, thought this was good. And and I really didn't have a position one way or another, you know, as as long as they kept the hamburger places open and and because it. Were, they were really good hamburgers there. And um, so, you know, so there was, uh, the, the communities were, th- there was definitely tension, but there was, with all respect intended, there was, uh, from either side, I, it was never a fuck you Palo Alto or fuck you East Palo Alto. It was, mm-hmm. hey, can't we just, you know, figure this out and, and all get along before it was all, before that became popular. So that, that's kind of what was going on. I mean, as a kid, I remember, you know, riding my bike to these places and I never, I never felt unsafe or, or anything, but I never really went into the heart of East Palo Alto as well. I, I was, you know, I'd go to Whiskey Gulch and if you were riding your bike or, you know, yeah, that's where you went. You, if you went into East Palo Alto, basically there was a, a main highway, main street, it would take you to a bridge, the Dumbarton Bridge, it would take you to the East Bay. That street called University Avenue would continue on the west side to uh, the heart of Stanford University. Mm. And and if you look at the poster for this show, I lived. My parents lived on University Avenue, and we were taking mail order tickets, so you could uh, send your. Uh, you know, <laughs> this is how unsophisticated I was as a promoter. You would send your letter to you know i said tickets available by mail order you know send it to jazz 939 university avenue which is where i live that was my parents house but i didn't even know enough at the time to say you know enclose a self-addressed stamped envelope or your tickets will be at the door i mean if you look at the poster it just says (laughs) you know it just has the address and i remember at the time thinking oh boy you know we'll do mail order and uh you know, so, I mean, I was, I was still learning along the way. So we did People get a couple. People also thought
1: they were, they were sending their, their money to the headquarters of jazz. I know. <laughs> I, I don't know
0: what they were thinking, but we did get a couple of letters. I remember, I remember, we actually got a couple of letters with checks, you know, for $2 or $4. And, uh, and, you know, and even though the ticket price was $2, $2 was really, even in 1968 was really cheap. Yeah. Uh, but if you were a student, the ticket price was $1.50. And it wasn't even, it didn't even say Pali students. It's, I remember, you know, we, we had a different kind of poster, not a, an, a thing that went out uh, to the schools that said, and I don't have any copies of those, it's student ticket price $1.50. I, I don't think any student came from any other school unless they were really into jazz at, uh, you know, at 16 years old like i was maybe three or four who the hell you know who knows you know what um at that
1: time in in that era where was um where was monk in terms of his like where did he sit in the pantheon was he was he mainstream was he already revered was he washed up
0: can you set that context well this is my interpretation of it so you really almost have to you know to read robin's book or ts i really wasn't aware of that time of uh, what was going on with him personally. I, you know, I didn't know uh, any of the psychological problems or the financial problems. Uh, the only mag- the magazine that I read at the time was Downbeat that I still subscribe to this day. And, uh, and all, it never, and Downbeat never talked about any of the negative sides of musicians. It was, oh, you know, Monk has a new record. Check it out. John Coltrane has a new record. And, um, you know Duke Ellington and so you you never heard any of the negative so I really wasn't even a, really aware of the the negative and controversial things going on with his life and it it was really until just very recently I heard that uh you know he was not a big record seller and I think one of the reasons that this took you know the TS I don't know I haven't asked TS's, so you could confirm it with him but one of the reasons that this record has has you know taken so long to come out with put out with was Monk, you know was not a was not a big record seller even though he, uh, you know his records to this day. I mean, I just I just came back from driving. I heard in the space of driving twenty minutes, three different versions of Thelonious Monk tunes by three different artists. So he he didn't really write. A tremendous amount of work during his lifetime, but every piece he wrote was a masterpiece. That's and that's
1: that's an interesting way to say it. I think of him almost. This is a bad analogy, but I think it I think it illustrates. I think of him in a way like J.J. Cale. Like he was sort of the musician everybody else um, revered, and whose compositions everybody else wanted to play. And certainly the public knew about him, but he was a musician's musician that could be a blessing and it occurs when you're actually the guy who's the musician's musician. Well, you're not always as, you know,
0: yeah. And then it's complicated with, you know, he did have, you know, there were psychological things going on with him. And I, I think people were reluctant to book him because they weren't sure if he was going to show up or who he would show up with or or what. And I wasn't even aware of any of this stuff when I called his manager. So he was doing a,
1: a residency or a run of shows at jazz workshop is that the um, yeah,
0: okay. mm-hmm.
1: yeah. And, and where was the jazz workshop Are you situated
0: oh boy i think i think it was in the tender what we would call the tenderloin and i think now it's a parking lot or a little park because there's a little plaque on the sidewalk there were three jazz clubs in san francisco that i remember to the jazz workshop the both and basin street west were the ones that I remember as a kid. And the jazz workshop was basically a bar and you had to be over 21 to get in. I wasn't over 21, so I, I, I never went there. And I believe it closed in like 1973 or 74. Then the other one was Basin Street West, which was also a, um, a restaurant, so minors could go in there. And the Bothan, I believe, was also a 21 and over, which closed down before I was 21. But if you want a little side story, I can give you a little side story on Basis Street West. So a few years ago, I ran into, at the Monterey Jazz Festival, Dave Brubeck. And Dave Brubeck at that point was like in his mid-80s, you know, late 80s and there was a social event going on there and I'm, I'm in the social, you know, private event and he's there. And I went up to Dave Brubeck and, and people there, you knew me, they weren't gonna, you know, I went up, I said, I said, Mr. Brubeck. Yes, I said, I got a story to tell you. When I was a kid and you were playing at, at Basin Street West in San Francisco, I was a newspaper boy and I wasn't old enough to drive and I remember saving up my money to go up to see you at Basis Street West. And I went there, and I was clearly the youngest kid there. And they said, "Where do you want to sit?" I said, "Well, I'd like to sit by Joe Morello because I'm a drummer." And I said, "And then Mr. Brubeck." So I bought my ticket. He says, "Yes." And meanwhile, when I'm doing this, the people around him—you know—I'm talking just like this. And then I bought my ticket. The ticket was three dollars and fifty cents. I saved up i took a bus i had to save up for the bus i had to walk from the bus station to the club then i i got my ticket and then they came to me and they said what do you what would you like to drink and i said oh no nothing It's fine you know they said well you know there's a two drink minimum now mr Brubeck, i didn't know about this minimum thing you know i just bought my my bus ticket i bought my ticket to get in and then they said a two drink minimum i said okay Okay, I'll have two Cokes. they said, okay, that, you know that's two dollars and fifty cents now, Mr. Brubeck, all the money I, I want you to know that what I paid for the bus walking there, your ticket, and then the two drink minimum that I knew nothing about, I spent the month's newspaper boy earnings to see you, and you know what and he said what I said it was the best money I ever spent uh, and he said he said. Phew. I thought you were gonna ask for your money back. <laughs> and, and everyone cracked up. And, and I said, and I said, can I have my picture taken with you? And I have that picture signed on my wall right here. You know. But, Danny, but, I have to
1: tell you, <laughs> I thought you were gonna tell me he pulled a ten dollar bill out of his pocket and stuffed it in your
0: hand. <laughs> no, it's the best, best money I ever spent. <laughs>
1: So as a 16-year-old, you want to book this concert. What do you do? How you, do you reach out into the cosmos and say, I would, I would like
0: Monk to magically appear at my doorstep? What did you well, do? Well, Monk wasn't the first concert. To really back up, when I was a kid, you know, before Vegas and, you know, Reno and Tahoe became big areas, there were two casinos in Lake Tahoe. Hera's Club and Harold's Club—they were right across the street from each other—and this was South South Shore, Lake Tahoe. And I'm like eight or nine years old, and my parents love going up there and going gambling. They really—it was pretty boring, actually, for kids to go up there. But I come from one of six boys, and I remember at that point I think I had two brothers, so there were three of us, and we'd go up there, and my parents would like check us in to a uh, uh, they had a little place where kids could watch a movie. It was really boring. You, you know, now they got a whole thing of you know check your kid in for the day while you're out gambling. But that wasn't like in Disney
1: World. Yeah, the
0: Disney World. That wasn't like this in the late '50s and, and early '60s. Uh, it was just a, a movie theater, and we would try to break out of it. But the the reward we got was my parents would take us to a, a dinner show at Harris Club, and I think it was called the. Pacifica room and it was a really like old fat. I didn't think of it then, but old fashioned dinner club. And so we would see Lawrence Welk, Red Skelton, mm. the, you know, the Lennon sisters with Lawrence Welk. And that was, you know, so I always, as a kid, I looked forward to the dinner show. And I remember mm. that when the waiter, the waitress would come, she'd take our order and then she'd go up to this door and I would see her hand kind of go underneath, and then she'd go through the door. So, as I remember, thinking, "Boy, I I, I get that. I guess that's backstage." So I would I would go up. I at a very early age I would go up to the door, put my put my hand there. So there was a little buzzer, and that opened the door, and I and it went you it let you in backstage. So I used to sneak in backstage when I'm like eight or nine years old. And get all of these people's autographs, and no one ever threw me out. No one ever said, "Hey, how would you get back here?" You know, I would go up to Lawrence Welk. I've really had a really good record uh, autograph collection till it got lost. And um, and and I remember coming back, and and my parents now they knew what I was doing. They thought it was great. You know, whose autograph you're going to get today? I'm going. I'm going for him. You know. So, um, and I remember telling my, my parents, I said, "You know, someday." I want to be a concert promoter and I got to stop people like me from sneaking in backstage. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny
1: that you tell that story because I am um, when I, I, used to live in New York for a long time and I would go see um, shows at the Blue Note all the time. Okay. Jazz okay. Shows. At the and original my, Blue Note. Yeah. Yeah. And my yeah, son yeah. plays piano. Um, <laughs> and so I took him to see McCoy Tyner once. And the band was so excited to see it. You know, he was a, a child at that, time. yeah, yeah a kid. They yeah. were so excited to see a young person, um, you know, at this, you know, just, you know, hearing the music and enjoying it and being at the show that he became like, he was my backstage pass. They were so right. excited right. to see him. <laughs> oh, come over here and talk, you know, they, they were drawing <laughs> pictures for him on the napkins. Um, it was, that's, uh, it's, it's amazing how, um, even the most jaded performer uh, sees a kid and they, uh, they get so excited to see sort of a, a young person digging what they're doing.
0: Well, I, I think it's genetic in a way, because I took my son to, uh, to the Olympics in Athens in 2004, I think. It was, you know, 15 years ago or whenever it was. And my, my son said, uh, and we had just saw, oh God, someone the, the swimmer win his ninth gold medal, you know, was a big deal. And my my son said to me, he was like twelve or thirteen at the time, says, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go back and get, you know, get his autograph, see if I can meet him. So he saw the press going. And I we'd always talked about, we call it the walk. You know, if you know the walk, you can get in anywhere. See, so I said, Okay, well, I'll be here when you you know, you come back. And he didn't come back for like an hour. And I'm I'm waiting for him. I said, What happened? He said, Well, I went back with all the press. And they were doing a little press conference and I'm standing there listening to the press conference. And then this door shut and we were outside the Athens uh, Olympic border. So I was outside and I had to come back in. And I said, so how do you do it? He said, well, I just knew the walk and I was able to walk. in." I said, let me get this straight. Greece just spent like a billion dollars to have high, you know, high level security to prevent what happened in Munich, you were able to be locked out and get back in. He said, yeah, dad, you know, you, you taught me the walk. I said, I didn't teach you. I think you just have it. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> genetics. it <was> <laughs>
1: <down>. <laughs> okay. So okay. monks come into the jazz workshop and, um, okay. you decide he's coming to
0: your high school. Okay. Um, so I di- yeah, I digressed a little. So, um, so, I wanted to to be a, a concert promoter in mm-hmm. jazz at that point. And the, uh, there was a lady at Berkeley named Darlene Chan who was a student there who was, uh, je- who was starting the Berkeley Jazz Festival, UC Berkeley. And I called her and, and asked if I could put up posters for her, you know, because I, I was, I think, 14 years old at the time. And she sent me posters. Somehow I got posters and I'm putting up posts because it kind of made sense, you know, putting up posters at Stanford and Palo Alto for the UC Berkeley Jazz Festival. There's, you know, so I, I put up posters and I, and I think she gave me free tickets. And the uh, so I did that for a couple of years until well, I did that for a year. Well, I did that for every year she was there. <laughs>
1: By the way, that's the dream job in the music business, right there. Like You started right at the top. <laughs> yes. I'll put up posters if I can come to free gigs. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. It well, it's the mailroom.
0: It's the mailroom, yeah. you know, Yeah. the William Morris mailroom. So yeah. uh, I told her, I said, you know, I'd like to put on concerts at my high school. And uh, she said, who? And I said, well, do you know someone who locally and, you know, I know Vince Garaldi lives here and John Hendricks lives here. And she said, well, here are their phone numbers. So, the first concert I actually put on was Vince Guaraldi and John Hendricks, and that was in 1967 at the um, in Pal- a year before uh, Thelonious Monk. And I did that at the uh, at the time it was called the girls' gym. We had two gyms at Palo Alto High School: the boys' gym and the girls' gym. And then we had it at the girls' gym. And that was really the very first concert I did and I had a, it was right after, uh, he did, came out with the movie, the Charles Brown, Charles, Sh- Charles Schultz, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Peanuts movies, cartoons that he did all the music for. And we had a, when I look at pictures in the yearbook of him, he's playing a, a, uh, an upright piano. I didn't even know about baby grands or grands, you know, he had, but he invited me to his house. And I, don't, I really don't remember how much we paid him. But he said, he said, kid, have you ever done a show before? I said, no. He said, well, why don't you come up and I'll give you a little education. So I took a bus. He lived in Marin somewhere. So I took a bus up to his house and he gave me copies of press releases and pictures of him and bios. And he said, you know, when you do a press release, here's how you do it. You keep it to one page. You have your contact information at the top. You have the, the venue, the artist in the venue. And then he, he gave me a, a box of um paper like handlebar mustaches, because that was his thing. He said, you can hand these out to your friends and you can walk around and you know look like me. So th- there were posters that, and to that, and I have no idea where they are. I don't have any of those. Th- and that concert did really well. And, and it was really I remember that was the night when I uh, I told myself I really wanted to be a concert promoter. It was that, that concert. Yeah. That night. And then, so Dorleen gave me a, a few months later, there was, a, and by the way, these are all under the pretense of raising money for the international club. And we supported schools in, in Africa and Kenya. I never went to these schools. I have no idea where the money went, you know, we, you know, it doesn't matter. So then the net, then I did a Cal Jader concert, And I told Darlene, you know, really my two idols were Thelonious Monk and Duke Ellington. And she said, well, here's Thelonious Monk's phone number. Now I'm 16 years old, so uh, I'm old enough to drive. So I'm putting up posters for her and picking up musicians, artists for her as they came in to the San Francisco airport and I would drive them to Berkeley for the jazz festival. So I would pick up Cannibal Adderley and Gil Evans and but, you know, I mean, I, I was there to meet him on time. I got him there on time and never really thought I'm a kid or anything. It was, you know, I, I do remember uh, picking up Gil Evans one time at the airport. He was coming in to play with uh, Miles Davis and they had the Gil Evans Orchestra. They were doing whatever that record was uh not kind of blue, uh, Gil oh, Evans and uh, Sketches Jay. of Spain? Sketches of Spain. Yeah. 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 Oh, and, I, right. and I remember, I remember, I remember picking up Gil Evans at the airport and he said, you know, I know that there's great bread in San Francisco. You know, this, um, you know, French bread. And uh, boy, I'd love to I'd just, so I said, well, let's go get some. So we went to a place in, in the airport of, you know, a tourist, you know, stand where they were selling French bread. And there was a line to pay, and he has the, the bread under his, you know, holding his bread, and the line, and after about two or three minutes, he lost his patience, and he said, let's go. And I said, okay, and he's carrying the bread. I said, what about the bread? You know, he said, no, let's just go. So <laughs> so I, I said, so, so we're making a run for it. He said, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so he stole a loaf of bread. I, <laughs> I think was as the a statute of
1: limitations I think, is okay.
0: <laughs> I was his was accomplice. <laughs> <laughs> so so Monk is coming to to um playing uh the jazz workshop and Darlene knows that and she said here here's his phone number, here's a, his manager's phone number, a guy named Jules Columbi. And there was Jules and Harry. They were two brothers. And and I think I started with Harry but ended up dealing with Jules. There was some transition between the two of them. But I called him up and and said, I know you're coming to San Francisco and I'd like to book you at my high school. And he said, well, we're playing in San Francisco. I said, yeah, I know, but you're playing at night. Maybe you could do an afternoon show at the school. And he said, well, you know, you're going to have to pay me $500. I said, well, that's that's okay. We can do that, you know, because – we have 350 t- seats and, you know, I think we'll sell them for $2 each and uh, hopefully it'll be some money left over for the international club. And he said, okay. So he sends me a contract with pictures of monk and uh, albums to play because uh, he had just released beneath the underground at that point and bio. So it was a regular press package. I mean, he was treating me like any, you know, treat, anyone who would, who was buying Monk. So we're advertising the show. Uh, By the way, I had the principal sign the contracts. I couldn't sign the contracts. He sends them back. And we had a little radio station at high school. Had a, we had an amphitheater. It was called an amphitheater. A friend of mine wired it for sound. And he started what we called a radio station. We called it radio X. And we played Mm -hmm. music during lunch hour. and, uh, he would play rock and roll and I, I had a show, I think it was Wednesdays, Wednesdays or Thursdays. It was a, a jazz show where I played jazz and be able to promote what I was promoting. Here's Thelonious Monk or here's, you know, Vince Garaldi. And we made up, we made up stationery that said Radio X, you know, Palo Alto High School and the, the address, you know, the address. So we sent these records, we sent these letters to record companies to get promotional copies of the records, so we could play them on a radio station. So we start getting promotional copies of the records that I still have, by the way, you know, because they, they would come with a big, on um, the old days of records, albums, you know, a big white sticker on the front. They would say what, you could easily see what song it was and how long it was. So we I did it with this friend. By the way, this guy was interested in going into radio and spent his whole professional career in radio because of that. I mean, he got the bug there. So uh, we're doing. So I'm, I'm thinking, boy, I'm doing felonious monk. One of my idols, and the show's not selling very well. So that's okay. You know, I can I can promote that. So we have po- We have printed up posters, and I'm printing up. I'm putting them up in East Palo Alto, and the police are telling me, "Hey, kid, you you know." this is not a good place for you to be. This isn't safe. You're going to get in trouble here. I said, you know, I I'm, I feel just fine and I'll be in bigger trouble if the show doesn't sell. So it's got to, <laughs> you know, this is I'm putting the word out in Palo Alto. So the, the show still isn't selling and being a, a, a the newspaper boy that I was, there were certain stores that I went, that I did business with. They, they you know, they know you're the kids, you know, it's the, the music stores, the bookstores, the, you know, the florist that would buy flowers for my mother's birthday or something. So I start selling ads and I put together a program to sell ads to people because it's not selling well, that even if no one showed up, I'd sell enough ads to be able to pay Monk. Because the last thing I wanted to do was, lose money on the show because I really was even aware of how that was even a concept. It wasn't even, it never crossed my mind. We would lose money. It was, it was, you know, not, not even how much we would make. It was, we're not going to lose money. So I put together this, this ad, the program and may, and knew I had sold enough in the programs with the tickets that we had sold already that, that I'd broken even. And a couple of days before the concert, Um, a janitor comes to me and says, you know, if you let me record the concert, I'll tune the piano. And I, now to this, I don't remember if he said I'll tune it or I'll have it tuned, but, (laughs) but it was tuned, you know? So I don't know if he tuned it himself. We don't know. We're still looking for the, for the janitor. We have it down to like three or four people. And what we're hearing from the janitors so far is that, you know, most of them are passed away but I thought for sure if someone would have bragged to you know, their children or grandchildren. Hey, I once recorded Thelonious Monk. So I said, yeah, you can record the concert. So he, the piano is tuned. He records the concert and I called Monk a couple of days in advance just to check. My first conversation with him was to just check in with him to, you know, see how he was doing and if he wanted anything special, we're looking forward to seeing him at the high school. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, you're playing our high school on Sunday. He said, no, I'm not. I said, yeah, i we have a contract with uh, Jules Columbia and he sent us press materials. We've had uh, recordings. We've been playing it on the school radio stations. We have posters all over town. We've made a program for the show. He said, well, uh, you know, I have a gig that night. I said, yeah, I know. That's why you're playing in the afternoon. He said, yeah but, yeah, but, you know, I don't have a car. I mean, how am we going to get there? I said, well, my, my brother's old enough to drive, so he can come get you in the van." And, and I don't know if I actually said old enough to drive, but, I, but my brother <laughs> can come and get you. You know, it, it's time. It sounds better now saying old enough to drive. But My parents would not let me drive to San Francisco. It was too far away being a new young driver. I only had my license a few months. He says, Okay. So my, the show's not selling. My brother comes, picks him up. They, the word in East Palo Alto, they were, they were very skeptical that, that Thelonious Monk was going to play in what they called lily white Palo Alto. So I put the word out to East Palo Alto because when I'm putting up posters, there were posters all over that said, vote yes on Nairobi. And then I would put up a Thelonious Monk poster and say, "And come and see Thelonious Monk at Palo Alto <laughs> High School okay. the, the Sunday before the election." Okay, so uh, I I said, if you don't you know if you don't believe that Monk's going to be there, then just come. Don't buy a ticket. Come show up at the parking lot, and when you see Monk, then buy a ticket. So they did. So the parking lot was filled with these Palo Alto. My brother drives up. I remember the bass was kind of sticking out of the, the window. They see him in the quartet getting out of the car. Everyone, they line up, they buy their tickets. We do the show. There were two opening acts, so it wasn't an evening with, or an afternoon with Thelonious Monk. There were there were two other acts. And they were, you know, a well-packaged show as it turned out. They were, most of the performers were black, if, if not all of them actually. Uh, musically, it, it just fit together, the three acts. It was uh, Jim Jim Marks, uh, Afro Jazz Band, and a group called Smoke. And these were comprised of, of local pe- you know, local kids and some Stanford students that had a band. So I got some of the Stanford students that came over and bought tickets. And now we had East Palo Alto. And we had um, a, a segment from Pal- from the high school, the students, that would automatically go to everything. So I knew, I know they would come. You always had those in high school, you know, the the kind of the rah-rah kids. So we did the, we did the show. The show's great. (coughs) I get the tape. We get Monk home. And I really didn't think much about it for another 50 years. I, I, then I, a few months later, I went to, I, I promoted a Duke Ellington concert when I was still in, in high school the following March. Because while this is going on, I'm trying to get Duke Ellington to to come to the high school. And uh, I knew he was playing in San Francisco, doing his, the church music concert. Was it a smaller band at that point? No, it was a a full band. band. No, no, no. I didn't promote the whole band. But he was playing in San Francisco doing a show at the church right across. Oh man, it'll come to me. Duke Ellington's coming. So I'm in a, a youth symphony orchestra called the California Youth Symphony. And I played timpani and percussion in the, in the orchestra. So I went up to San Francisco, took a bus up. Now, I knew I wasn't old enough, I was 15 doing this. And I took a bus up, not knowing where he was staying and uh, only knew of two hotels in San Francisco at that time. The, the the Mark Hopkins and the Fairmont were the only two hotels that I, that's the two that everyone talked to. So I took some ho- some records and I went up to the Mark Hopkins Hotel and picked up the phone. I, again, I took the bus up and walked up there, <laughs> and picked up the phone and, and as Mr. Ellington here, there's no Mr. Ellington uh, registered. I went across the street to the Fairmont Hotel is Mr. Ellington here? They said, Hold the phone. He picks up the phone. I said, Mr. Ellington, I'm in a I'm in the Youth Symphony Orchestra. I'm a, at that point I would think I was a junior in high school. And we're trying to raise money to go to Australia. And I brought some records of our symphony up. So maybe if you know you listen to it, you would consider doing a, a benefit for us to help us raise money to go to Australia and I brought some records with me. He said, okay, come up to my room. So I remember going up to his room. He answers the door. And the, the entire interaction was maybe 15 seconds. He opens the door. I said, here's some records of our youth symphony, you know, all high school and junior high school kids. And uh, he said, thank you very much. Shut the door. I went, went home. Six months later, he's coming back to San Francisco. He's playing at Bimbo's now. And now I'm old enough to drive. And again, I went up there without an invitation or anything. I went right to the Fairmont. I says, Mr. Ellington here? Yes. And I was there with my girlfriend, my high school girlfriend. I said, you may not remember me, but I brought up some records of our youth symphony, and maybe you would consider, you know, doing a fundraiser for us. And he said, as a matter of fact, I did listen to it, and I really enjoyed it, and I think I would, but I'd like, but can you come up and have dinner with me in my room first? So... When my first meeting was for him was dinner in his room with my girlfriend and room service. And to this day, my, my friend, my, the, the, the former high school girlfriend, we, we still joke about this. And then I gave him a ride to the, to the gig and gave him a ride back. And I kind of became his San Francisco driver for the rest of his life. And he did come and do a concert with us uh, to raise money the following March. So I did Monk the end of October, and then the following March, when I was still a senior in high school, I did Duke Ellington. Oh, far, uh, not the Far East Suite, but it was after, uh, boy. oh boy. In the Beginning God, I remember those are the first four words of, of a song that that he and Billy Strayhorn wrote. and I, And I have that on tape that's never been released or heard. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> wow! So to go
1: back to the Monk okay. Show
0: for a sec, the janitor's not identified, huh? That's amazing. We're we're looking for him, and um, and we now have a working title for the for the janitor. The working title that we we have among us is um, Monk's custodian recorder. Oh,
1: that's amazing! <laughs> that's amazing.
0: And we and we and my son is working on you know. Put, going out, putting out, you know, on social media something. We, we we're kind of narrowing it down. We know some of the white guys are dead, but at this time this is before computers. And everything was done with paper. You know, everything was we and in this in the school yearbook, where it has pictures of all of the teachers and their names, like it would be, you know, in, you know, what they you know, the name of the teacher, there's a, a group picture of the janitors with with their brooms and all it says is the janitors we don't even have the names of them but we're we're, oh. we're slowly zeroing in on us so if anyone knows anyone who might have been a janitor because even you know this is 52 years ago so even if they were 30 if they were you know they'd be in their 80s now yeah. but so e- even if they're not here we'd like to give them a credit in the in the album if we could find out who was the guy who recorded because i'm sure he you know Hey, I once recorded Mug, you know, <laughs> you know, the great family lore, you know. Is the um, is the photo that's
1: used on the cover of um, Palo Alto from that show?
0: No. 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 Okay, no. Are, Do that's you have photos?
1: Were there any photos?
0: The only photo I have is in the high school yearbook.
1: Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. So somebody took a photo for the yearbook.
0: Yeah. And I got a hold of the, of the photographer. Yeah. Uh, who's still alive. I mean, he was a classmate. You know, that was what students did.
1: Yeah. There's, do yeah. the kids remember it? Do the kid do your, to your, do your high school peers remember oh, the, your, yeah. sort of your
0: entrepreneurialism? Well, I don't think anyone thought of it like that. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, I mean now, now, I mean, they, of course they know who Monk was, but there were people there who I met at my 50th reunion last year, 19 in 2019 who told me that, Oh yeah. You know, they, they love Monk, but they really went because of the other bands. <laughs> you know, they, and that's fine. I mean, that's, that's a good, that's, you know, I would look at that as being a good booker, you know, you, Yeah, that's you, the sign of a good package, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so I don't think anyone really thought of it as historic in any way. I didn't really, yeah. it was, you know, we were high school kids. It was, it was ever, Hey, look what I did. You know, I mean, I spent my whole professional career with Bill Graham doing predominantly rock and roll, but basically booking and promoting anything i wanted we had a relationship where i could do whatever i wanted you know i had to book of course what was coming around but you know if i had other ideas he he'd let me do whatever i wanted to do and i always thought of it was, so we had all of the the office was filled with you know posters grateful dad janice joplin big brother you know you know bruce springsteen rolling stones and then in my, and then and then in my in my office i had a mug poster And, you know, because I thought it was kind of cute because it had the date, you know, 1968. And in 1985, that that was the only poster I had. In 1985, uh, you'll probably want to, you may want to cut this out or not, but you may not remember when, uh, you know, Bill Graham was a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. And in 1985, uh, our president at the time, Ronald Reagan, went to Germany. To a cemetery where there were Nazis buried, and and yes, and there was a major, you know, um, uh, 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 not oppositions, you know, discussions of trying to get him to not go. And Bill held a rally at Union Square in San Francisco. We had a full page ad and a rally to. Uh, convince him to not to go. It wasn't the concert. I remember going to Bill and I said, well, we're doing a rally. You want me to get balloons? He said, no, Danny, this isn't a show. This is a protest. And this is how we're going to protest and hopefully convince our president not to honor, uh, not to go to a a cemetery where Nazis are buried. Almost sounds current. And after we held the rally and we started getting... um, uh, anti-discrimination, uh, anti-Semitic letters and phone calls. And three days later, our office was firebombed and destroyed, yeah. including this this poster. Oh. And I got a call a couple of weeks afterwards from the teacher who was still there. And I hadn't talked to her either since or you know, before. And she said, She said, "I happen to have one more poster of the Monk concert because that was the first thing that we had ever reprinted on colored paper, and I saved it. and You're welcome to have it if you want it. And that's the poster that's in the album and that's on my wall now."
1: Wow, Annie, that's amazing. So, you know, something else about um, something else you said that 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 stands out for me is that you mentioned your friend who. Loved the loved having the radio station at school, and then went embarked on a life in radio. And you, um, you know, you you started promoting in high school and, and, and pursued that. Really, sort of stands out as like those were opportunities that were like unique to American public schools of that era. Like kids had access. First of all, kids had a little sort of like leeway and freedom to um, get in over their heads and to make mistakes, and like not everything was like you know restricted and criminalized and and you know they, there weren't there weren't safety guards on everything but also just the schools themselves were they just presented opportunities for kids to explore their interests, and there were facilities and there were you know, the idea that a school even had the equipment to um christ more than one piano That <laughs> there was an upright yeah. and a grand yeah. you know it seems like it's very unique to a, a point in time um uh, in our country
0: i kind of disagree with that you know people say to me you know, it's not like the good old days, and that's kind of what you're saying. Oh, you know, in the good old days, kids could do that. You know, I, I've learned, with me at least, that you know, you've heard that when people get older, they become set in their ways and curmudgeon. I've actually become just the opposite. It it seems, you know, I'm. I think I am. Maybe I'm. I'm in denial, but <laughs> but I, I I you know, people say to me, every day is a good old days, and I just think the the opportunities. Today are just different. Just because they're they're different doesn't mean they they don't exist. I think what's ha- what's happening now, for instance, with this whole COVID situation and businesses being closed and no to to bring to make this really relevant and contemporary. This is my opinion that uh, with people not being out not being able to go to to shows and sports events and who knows what's going to happen to these big companies, Live Nation and AEG, whether they can stay in business or what's going to happen. I actually think with what's going on now is a future great opportunity for a new generation of kids to either become concert promoters. I think, I think now is a great time to start thinking about if, this, if you wanted to be a concert promoter, to do it, just do it. And, and I think when people ask me, you know, how do you make it a music? my line is, well, first, you know, you got to have the chops. If you don't have the chops, you're not going to make it, but learn to use a telephone and write a letter. It's amazing that people don't know how to talk to each other anymore or write a letter. I mean, I, I, write a fair amount of letters and it's amazing to me that people who come up and say, geez, you know, I got a letter, I got a letter in the mail and I, I saved it. and, and, and write a letter and make it grammatically correct, not, not are you okay, you know, are you okay, you know, how are you doing, <laughs> what's going, you know, people love this, this kind of stuff, and that's, so, you know, I think the opportunities are there if you have the ambition, is what I'm saying. Yeah, well, if,
1: um, if you don't mind, I would love to ask, could you share a story of, um, an event from your career or a particular gig from your career. And I would love to know if there's other, another highlight or a special story of a show that you put on that um, sort of transcended the business part of it for you and was just super special to have been involved.
0: Oh boy. Okay. Well, let me give you one as it's related to Monk. Okay. Okay. So when I, I first started working with Bill and I'd been there, I'd been booking Bill and I was his, uh, booker, you know, we had a joining office, but I was a kid. I was just out of business school. So I'm like 24, 20, 24, 25. And, and I remember one of the first really kind of big shows that I worked on the eight with the agent, the manager, you know, by myself, it was, um, 12 dates with Bette Miller and, I know there were three dates in uh, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, and Berkeley. And it was the fr- And if you put all those dates together, it was the uh, the first million dollar booking I did. If you put them all together, and we had sold out, and i I was really feeling good. I, I had felt that I was, you know, I had gone up a step in who I'm dealing with. And uh, Bette Miller came down with appendicitis. And oh. had and had to cancel, <laughs> and the dates were canceled. And Bette Midler's road manager, not, not manager, road manager was a guy named Brian Avnet. So I'm talking forty five years ago now, you know, thereabouts. So I, I kind of became friends with Brian Avnet, who was also just kind of a kid. You know, we we're all kind of kids at that point. And he went on to break. Uh, what was it, John mm-hmm. Groban? Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Yeah. But um, yeah, sorry. Go ahead.
1: So, (laughs) okay.
0: Very, but that's, yeah, that's the same Brian Abnett. But, and so we, we had a bonding experience over that, over that because they actually canceled. We were set up to open the show at Berkeley Community Theater and she came down with it that afternoon. So we had, we were ready to open the doors. You know, everything was set up on the stage. And, uh, so, and it was a, a bonding experience. Before Josh Groban, he managed Manhattan Transfer also mm. for years, for years and years. So a few years, so Brian and I still communicate. And a couple of years ago, we were having dinner. I was down there, we were having dinner. And his friend is Bobby Columbi, who is the, the, the drummer of Blood, Sweat & Tears, who was the brother of Jules and Harry Columbia, who I bought Felonius Monk from. See, yeah, recognize out, that
1: last name there. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. So we're we're at dinner, and, and Brian and Bobby are really good friends, and and uh, I'd never met Bobby before. And, I'm, and I said, you know, I know his brother. I decided to know his brother, but, it's, you know. And he said, well, let's call him up. So we called him up, and Bobby said, well, why don't you come by the house? So we went by the house at like 11 o'clock at night, spent you know spent a couple hours you know I'm telling him Bill Graham stories he's telling me other stories so um, so it, you know you never know how they how things are going to you know come together i mean i there're lots of stories that uh so in 19- <laughs> no, i don't mean to put you on the
1: spot you're just a great storyteller yeah. <laughs> well I don't know about that
0: but uh, you know no i i work with a guy you know i work with bill and what people don't know about him, they read about him and they say, oh, you know, he was tough. He, he really wasn't that tough. You know, he yelled and screamed. Yeah, to get his point across, maybe. But, uh, but he was a very, uh, people who worked for him were very loyal. I, it was the only job I ever had. And he taught us how to treat people and how to, uh, you, you know, what, what I learned about business Uh, you know, uh, you know, I learned from him. I got my Stanford MBA. When, when you get an MBA at Stanford, that's like, like a big deal. You know, it means you're going to, you should get a good job and you should, you're on your way to some type of success and all of this crap. So I I don't mean that. I say that with all the love in the world. (laughs) So I, 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 uh, Bill eventually hears about me. I, I'm putting on the concerts as a graduate student at Stanford and, Bill eventually heard about me and heard I was looking for a job without going into too much stuff. So I'm, I, I go up to, we have a couple of meetings, a couple of interviews, and he finally says, you know, I'd like you to come to work for me. I said, I'd like to come to work for you. And he says, well, how much do I have to pay you? I said, well, you know, Procter & Gamble is offering me this much money, and Leo Burnett advertising me is offering that much money. He said, man, there, they're giving you that much money? I said, Yeah. He said, I'll pay you half. I said, what do you mean half? Now half was really not very much money. He said, because look, at the, look, you can go to work for Procter & Gamble or Leo Burnett, these straight jobs. And and if you do as, as good a job for them as I think you'll do for me, they'll be very pleased with you and you get a 5% raise or a 7% raise. And maybe sometime they start giving you stock options and, You know, and you'll be very comfortable there and very successful. If you come to work for me, not only will you make more money than you could ever imagine, you'll have a ball. We shook hands. We never had a signed deal. We would, and I started at half the salary. And we would sit down once a year and discuss my bonus without going into specifics. And I would take that bonus. And go and buy an apartment building in San Francisco, and that was, and I, I've, I, I a fair amount of real estate in San Francisco because of him. But the bonus was never based on how much money a show made, or it, it. I mean, that was part of it, but it was also how did you get along with people? How did you solve a problem? How did you, you know, deal with the situation? How did you deal with the politics? Bill had a way. I remember going going into Bill. I'm, I'm, there, I'm working for like two weeks. And I said, hey, hey, Bill, I got this idea. We can make more money. We can, we can take the pizzas and we can cut them into two more pieces and we can charge 25 cents more. And he said, son, sit down. He said, there are two things you have to know if you're going to you know, work uh, last in our company. One, we're a really good example of a profit-making company. Two, we're a really bad example of a profit-maximizing company. And if you can remember that, you'll do just fine. And that's really how I, you know, In that kind of one conversation in a funny way, I learned more in that than I learned in two years of getting a Stanford MBA.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. When you, that, that anecdote and that philosophy is the difference between, oftentimes the difference between being in business for 30, 40, 50 years with the same people again and again and grinding it out and taking all the money off the table every time and just burning through people and burning through relationships. Yeah. yeah. That's really yeah. amazing.
0: Yeah. So people who've worked at the company, uh, after Bill passed, we started the Bill Graham Foundation. And the Bill Graham Foundation, we, uh, we're we doing pretty, really well. And we give out money we to what we call the little guy. And Bill was very supportive of people below the radar, so to speak. You know, people who needed... $1,000 here, 1500 there, to, to do a school program, a music program, a, a food program, to, to rent buses, to take the, uh, the, the, the school band to a music contest, uh, you know, somewhere. And Bill was very gratuitous that you know, very generous that way. And the people who worked for him, I, I worked there 24 years. I was, I was not the new kid on the block, but there were people there for 30 years, I mean, and, or, or longer. So he instills that in you. My assistant, who's has been with me for 34 years, I have people who have worked for me now for decades. And uh, and we get along and, uh, you know, it all works out. The, the, other, the other thing Bill did was there were certain people in the company that really didn't get along with each other. They were, they were on, on opposite spectrums, even though we didn't all necessarily think alike. So there was there were there was one person who shall remain nameless and we disagreed on everything you know he uh, uh, you know the way the way a show should be run and the way things should be done we disagreed on it um, the joke was we disagreed on everything so bill would make sure that we two you know work together on as many shows as possible because if you have people who are so divergent on their positions and beliefs, that out of those two beliefs and philosophies will come something better than either of them could have thought themselves. So everyone in the company thought that this guy and I really hated each other, but we really enjoyed working with each other because you know the level of, of uh, confrontation, so to speak, you know, we'd always come up with a better solution. So this went on for decades. He had cancer, unfortunately. And he's on his deathbed, he's on life support, and the family calls me and says, We're getting ready, we're going to take him off of life support, and and we would like you to be at our side with him. So those are the kinds of, of things that Bill taught us. And uh, I mean, this isn't about Bill, but somehow, you know, I was I was primed at an early age to, you know, to work in, in an environment like this. Yeah. And people like Thelonious Monk who accept, you know, who took my call and said, okay. I didn't think there was anything strange about it. I mean, now I'm here. Why is he working with the 16-year-old kid? I'm thinking, why wouldn't he if the kid's making sense? That's beautiful. So.
1: Danny, thank you so much. I could okay. talk to you and listen to you for hours, um, maybe again someday over a meal when we're allowed to meet in public.
0: <laughs> <laughs> What's that record behind you? What's that record? Is that a gold um, record?
1: It's, a, it's, for, um, yeah, it's for a Rolling Stones DVD that I worked on in Another Life.
0: One of Bill's favorite stories, by the way, was the tour. Oh, boy. I don't remember if it was the 81, 84, 78 tour where uh, uh, Keith sees Bill fixing his a shoe. One of Keith's shoes, uh, as the sole came out or something, and it came off. And, and and Keith sees Bill kind of taping it up with gaffer's tape so that the shoe fits. And and Keith said, but "What's this?" And Bill said, "I'm fixing your shoe." He said, "You're you're fixing my shoe." <laughs> you know, no, no, yeah. Well, you need the shoe, and that, you know. And uh, Bill loved telling that. He loved he loved Keith. That's beautiful. Thanks, guys.
1: Thank you so much, Danny Schur. Thanks to Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at light.com. l-y-t-e.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else with a podcast button. Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. You can reach me directly at lp at light.com. Please keep your feedback coming. Thank you so much. Be safe and stay in touch.